Good morning online. Uh, we're going to be reading this morning. Thank you, Chris. I don't know if your hearts are as overwhelmed as mine. Behold our God. Come let us adore him. Thank you for leading so well and singing so well. What a joy. In the book of John, we're going to be reading this morning from verses 1 through 13. So John 1 through 13. I'll be reading to you from the LSB. Sorry, I was all choked up getting up here this morning. Hmm. Behold our God. And after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was near. And therefore his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, what you're doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself publicly to the world. For not even his brothers, for not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I bear witness about it, and that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I'm not going yet to the feast because my time has not yet been fulfilled. Having said these things, he said to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up. Not publicly, but it's as in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. And some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the crowd astray. Yet no one was speaking openly about him for the fear of the Jews. Let's pray. Our Lord, our God, we want to behold you this morning. We want to diminish the focus on me and the focus on my words and magnify Christ. Your word teaches us in Psalm 90 that you have been our dwelling place in and through all generations. You have given birth to the earth and from the world and from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The days of our life, regardless of the length, are limited, but you are limitless. They quickly pass and they will disappear. So teach us to number our days, Father. Teach us to use our time wisely so that we may present you a heart of wisdom. And what you wish us to learn from your word here this morning, please teach us. And what you wish us to apply, please impress upon us. And may, we and may you receive all glory, all honor, all praise. In your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. So as you can probably tell, I've spread out into a music stand and a pulpit already. That's because I want you to see this. God's word. That's what we're going to be studying this morning. 
Thank you for, Matt, the reminder of the time change last night. <laughs> Appreciate that. We showed up on time. Well, two minutes late. Uh, but we're here. Thank you for showing up on time. I am so encouraged uh, by God's word this morning. This is not a passage that if you were going to go preach at another church and you had the honor and the privilege as a man to go do that, that you would pick. But I'm not here to tickle ears. I'm here to talk about God's word. And so John, the book of John, you remember from last week in John 6, started off with 20,000 people approximately following Jesus, quote unquote following Jesus. And by the end of John 6, we, we learned that 11 remained 11 and here we are we go into John 7 and a a point of time a a period of time has passed and so if you look to God's word and it said and after these things in verse 1 now we need context before we can move forward so last week we did a flyby do you remember John 1 14 we learned that Jesus is the incarnate. He is the very son of God. He is manifest God in flesh, took on flesh. Nothing was diminished from his deity, but flesh was added. Humanity was added for our sake. John 2, you remember that we talked about that his mom said to him, son, needs more wine. And he said, my Hour has not yet come. John 3, John 4, as we fast forward all the way to John 5, remember, the, heals the lame man. This morning's story is the, the last time that Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. And it's the only time since John 5 that he's coming back in. John 7 Well, actually, he'll come back in in John 13, the Passover, for the final Passover. So if you think through, last week we were in the Passover. This morning you're going to read the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, depending on your translation. And a period of time has passed between John 6 and John 7. And it's estimated that it's about six and a half months if you look between the feasts. So what has Jesus been doing? That's the question that I want to impress upon your minds. For Jesus, it's about time. It's always about time. It's God's time. And his whole life was a man on a mission, marching to the cross, willingly desirous to follow the will of God. And so, let's pick it up. John 7, verse 1. And after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, not Jerusalem yet. For he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So here is the outline for this morning. If you have the bulletin, it's about God's time. It's about time, God's time. John 7, 1 through 10. Then we're going to dive into seeking Jesus. John 7, 11 through 13. And then finally, the application, the identity of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? What are you living for? And the importance of stewarding our time for the glory of God while you have time. And I do. So the context, 20,000 down to 11, one deceived, 
Many deserted, 11 remained devoted. Between John 6 and John 7, Jesus spent roughly six months with the 11. What was he doing? Many commentaries speculate on here, and that's all we can do. So we never want to say something with certainty unless we know. But what I believe Jesus probably was doing from all commentaries was spending time with his disciples, mentoring them, discipling them, still doing good works, still working hard, but he was in the territory, as you can see, on the outskirts. He is not in Jerusalem. He's not looking for fame and fortune. He's not looking to win the approval of man. He is investing deeply into the 11. For he knows that his time is short. And when he's gone, they will recall what he has taught them. They will recall through the Spirit. So John 7 opens up stating that a period of time has passed. D.A. Carson comments on this. and He says, the Feast of Booths and the Tabernacles is connected or commemorating the Israelites, the trek through the wilderness. The people built makeshift shelters out of leaves and out of branches. And the feast lasted seven days. And all the males were expected to attend. The feast was connected to the Old Testament harvest of grapes and olives and reflected what God had done for his people. The time between these two feasts, once again, was around six months. By reflecting on this fact, we learn the heart of Jesus. We learn the investment of Jesus into his disciples. And a great deal of time was invested in those close personal followers in personal discipleship. As we enter into John 7, the audience has now shifted from his disciples. Look to God's word. Verse 3, to his brothers. Now, these are his blood brothers. So, or I could say more accurately and more precise, his half-blood brothers. For Mary was a virgin for the birth of Jesus Christ alone. We know that the names of his brothers are in Matthew 13, verse 55. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. The key point is not their identity. The key point is they did not believe in Jesus' identity. You catch that? We're going to learn in verse 5 that they did not believe in Jesus. Can you picture that for a second? You grow up your whole life. He does nothing wrong. He's the perfect brother, the perfect son. They've seen miracles. And his own blood brothers at this point do not believe in the identity of of Jesus Christ. What does it tell you? Our belief in Jesus Christ comes from him choosing us, not us understanding him. Do you catch that? It's very important. They would become believers and they would follow him, but it would not be until after his resurrection. We learn from Acts 1.14. So his brothers are encouraging in John 7, Jesus, to make his works known publicly. Jesus, if you really want people to follow you, you have to get out of here. You're in the outskirts. So if you think of where we are, and you think of where L.A. is, 
It'd be like, let's, let's kind of get away from Santa Clarita. Let's go down into the heart of L.A. Because that's where you're going to get your followers. That's where you're going to get the crowds. Jesus isn't about crowds. Jesus is about souls. And he's investing his time into his leaven. And his brothers are encouraging him so that this is the action, this is the result, this is what's happening. Why would I do that? So that you are going to get more disciples. And therefore more may believe in you. They wanted to make a spectacle of Jesus Christ. But Jesus was not interested in making a spectacle of himself. He was interested in following the will of God. And Jesus knows the Father's plan, the Father's timetables, and man's desires are not God's desires. For Jesus, it was always about time, God's time. And so, look to point two on your outline. Verses one to ten. The Bible is grounded. Have you ever thought of this? The Bible starts with the words, in the beginning. The very first line of scripture is time-based. And then we go to Revelation 22, verse 20. And with a longing, looking forward to the end of time, when Jesus will come back, amen, come, Lord Jesus. From cover to cover, it's about time. It's about God's time. The Old Testament chronologically ends. You remember, if you know your Bibles well, the Old Testament was not written from a chronological point of view. But the Old Testament chronologically ends with a period of time when the prophets were silent, waiting expectantly for the Messiah. In God's timetable, when the exact political, religious, cultural conditions were in place, then God sent his son into the world to take on flesh. Genesis, or Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of the woman, born of the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that, so that they might receive adoption as sons. Remember last week we talked about adoption. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Jesus had complete dependence, commitment to the Father's sovereign timetable for his life. John 8, 20. Acts 7, Acts 1, 7. Acts 17, 26. Look to God's word, not my word. Consistently displayed in reliance of the Father's timing. In all things, his physical birth, his death, his resurrection, and in his coming again. For Jesus, it was always about God's time. It was a relentless mission by the Son of God to follow the will and the direction of the Father. First miracle states, as I've said, my hour has not yet come. The specific hour is referenced in 2, 4, and it continues to be referenced in John 7.30, John 8.20, John 12.23, John 12.27, John 13.1, John 16.32, and John 17.1. Have you ever wondered Why? From the very start of his ministry, he knew not just the day, but the very hour. We're going to learn about this, and I taught with the men yesterday, that as we, remember the scene for those that were there, 
in the upper room. And Jesus says to his disciples, the same 11 that he's invested the six months into, my hour has come. And then he gets down and he disrobes and he becomes their servant, washes their feet. That's the Savior. The Greek word in 2-4 is not the same Greek word that's used in John 7-6 and John 7-8. Something is different. Do you notice, look to your Bibles. Jesus says to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always here. He does not mention the word hour here, so something is different. Get up from your feast, verse 8. I'm not yet going to the feast. My time has not yet been fulfilled. So something is different between the other references than this. The hour, to help you dissect this as best as I can, is the appointed time for Jesus' death, resurrection, and eventual exaltation. That's not what Jesus is saying in 7, 6, 8, and 7, 8. Or 7, 6, and 7, 8. 7, 6 echoes the words, but contrasts his time to that of his brothers. Do you notice that? He says to them, my time is not yet, but your time is what? Always here. For the world hates him, but they cannot hate his brothers. Why? Because they're of this world. Which means they're not believers. Ten times we have the reference in John, and again, for the men that were in our time yesterday, when you see something repeated again and again and again, pay close attention. Ten times in John 7, 1 through 13, reference to time comes. Let me read them to you quickly. After these things, verse 1, verse 2, now the feast. These are all time references. Verse 3 continues, his time was near. Verse 6, so Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always ready. Go up to the feast yourself. Verse 8, I'm not going up to the feast because my time has not yet, another time reference, fully arrived. The eighth reference is in verse 9. Now, having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. And finally, in verse 10, we have two more references. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then, time reference, he himself also went up, but not publicly though in secret. Ten references in ten verses. Time matters. Jesus is teaching us something, and he was teaching them something that day, that time. It's about God's time. Jesus remained until, you may be wondering, so a question that could come from this that you might be thinking, wait a second, did Jesus say something and do the opposite? So if you're reading carefully through this, you might have thought, wait a second, he just told his brothers, I'm not going up. And then he says, I am going up. Well, actually, he doesn't say it, he just does it. Jesus is not contradicting. He's not lying here. He's waiting for God's timetable. So here, Jesus remained until the Father signaled it was time to go. This is not a contradiction. God's word never contradicts, ever. In Jesus' words and actions in John 7, 8, he says, I'm not going up to the feast because my time has not yet fully arrived. For the Father informs the Son on the time to stay and the time to go. And we learn in verse 10 that it was now his time. Then Jesus went willingly up to the feast. This would be the first time Jesus was back in Judea since he healed the lame man in John 5. 
And after this miracle, the Jewish leaders were seeking to kill him. Do you remember that? Go back in John 5. They were so upset. They had, he had healed a, a lame man that had been healed from 38 years. And instead of praising the Savior, they want to persecute the Savior. Instead of rejoicing, they reject. Instead of worshiping, it's now an all-out warfare that they want to kill him. That's the result of what they saw. Because for them, they wanted the praise and they wanted the worship. For Jesus, it was not praise. It was all about humility and praising the Father. The Jews wanted to kill him, but they could not before God's perfect time was complete. Now, the other points will be shorter than this one. So we're not going to go three hours. The Son of God had a keenness awareness of the divine timetable, which was determined by the Father. He was marching forward in complete obedience to the Father in the pursuit of the hour when God would glorify his obedient Son. Other references to Jesus' hour in the book of John. 7.30, 8.20, 12.23, 12.27, and then finally in John 13.1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart from the world having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end recognizing that the hour to glorify God had come John's gospel slows down if you ever looked at the timetable of John's gospel two thirds of the book of John I mentioned this to the men yesterday happened over all of Jesus' physical life One-third of the book of John happens over one week of Jesus' life. It's like fast forward to John 13, and then it's slow motion from John 13 and beyond. And John Calvin once said, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, look at the body of Jesus. But John looks at the heart of the Savior. Isn't that beautiful? The suffering servant, this is all a window into the heart of Christ. And recognizing the hour had come to glorify his father. Through divine inspiration, time slows down. Jesus is seen in chapter 13 with his disciples, once again, washing their feet, teaching them by example the importance of humility, comforting his disciples, reclining after and before washing, and reinforcing his divine identity as one with the Father. He informs them of a time coming when he will not be there to guide them, but the promised spirit will be there to draw attention to their minds, his teachings. John 15, Jesus now calls his disciples, time reference, his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer, time reference, do I call you slaves, for slaves do not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. Because of all things that I've learned from my Father, I've made known to you. Jesus is teaching his disciples that a time is coming when they would not be with him. A time is coming when the world would hate them. We pick that up in chapter 7. Doesn't go up with his brothers. Can't hate you because you're part of the world, blood brothers. But they hate me because they hate God. And Jesus is equal to God. He instructs them that a time is coming soon for his death and resurrection in John 16. The final reference to his hour is in the high priestly prayer. 
John 17, 1 and 2. Let me read to you God's word. Jesus, raising his eyes to heaven, says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you, just as you have given him authority of all mankind, so that all of you have given him, he may give eternal life. For Jesus, it was always about time, God's time. It was a relentless mission for the cross. The cross was not thrust upon Jesus. It was welcomed by Jesus. Because, not because he wanted the pain, because he was willing to follow the will of the Father. And whether he lived 33 years or 133 years, it's not about the length of time. It's what you do with your time. And so here we are, thousands of years later, talking about the Savior because he used his time fully to follow the Father. And he is the very Son of God. Jesus, glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. The longest prayer in the New Testament is found in John 17 at the end of the upper room discourse. Jesus truly understands us all the time. As our great high priest, he is the one that knows us consistently. Listen to the words from Hebrews, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things and yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace for help at the time of need. Jesus took on flesh at the perfect time. But by his willing submission to the Father, sinless life, he alone can sympathize as our great high priest all the time with us. Perhaps like me, you're overwhelmed with Jesus. Perhaps like me, you just feel like singing Behold Our God again. Jesus came to the earth in the fullness of time, appointed by the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived in a real sense of urgency to follow the Father's will for the limited time with which he had. The Messiah was finally here. The Jewish leaders missed it. They were seeking him to kill him. Point three, seeking Jesus. They wanted to kill Jesus And others were divided in their belief in Jesus. Seeking Jesus, 11 to 13. Jewish leaders, let's look to God's word. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast. This was not to worship him. And saying, where is he? And there was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. And some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the crowd astray. Jewish leaders. Jewish leaders were seeking not to follow him, but to kill him. Why? Why did they want to kill Jesus? These were the most learned men that were trying to follow, as I said last week, Moses' teachings. But they were missing the one that Moses' teachings were pointing to. Their system of religion, they did not want disrupted. They had the choice seat. 
These were the men of honor. These were the respected men. And Jesus flew right in their face that this was not about them. This was about the way up is the way down. They were more concerned with law keeping than the creator. Jesus confronted their hypocrisy in Matthew 23, 25 to 26. God's word teaches us, you are clean from the outside of the platter, but on the outer side, the inner side is filthy. You do everything possible to hide that impurity, that grime, and that filthiness from public view. You pretend to be righteous, and you major in the pretense of being righteous. Jesus was not what they expected, not what they wanted. They wanted relief from their oppressors, the Romans. And Jesus pressed in on them and disrupted the apple cart. And R.C. Sproul adds, those who were in a position of power and authority as the Pharisees and Sadducees were feared losing their power and authority. The Jewish leaders feared the consequences of a revolt against Rome. That's almost every page of the New Testament. They feared the Romans. They feared that Jesus somehow would lead them in an insurrection and cause another uprising and consequently bring a bloodbath. And so they sought to remove him before he could cause that trouble. Jewish leaders' hearts were hardened. Their desires for privilege, position, and self-gain. Quite the opposite of a savior who was selfless, lowly, and not interested in the appraisal or the approval of man. Others present were divided, we learn in verses 12 and 13. And there was a great deal of talk about him from the NASB. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying to him, no, on the contrary, he's misleading the people. However, no one spoke openly about him. Friends, Jesus cannot be a good man unless he's a God man. Do you catch that? If Jesus' claims, if their statement of being a good man is accurate, Jesus calls himself the son of God. So, can he be good if he's not God? And the answer is unequivocally no. He either is God, and therefore he is intrinsically good, or he's a liar, he's a deceiver, and therefore run for the hills, as the other 19,000 and change did. Jesus cannot be good unless he is God. For his claims of deity and salvation is found in him alone. If not true, then he once again is a deceiver, which is not indicative of good man. But if his claims are true, then your life must be turned upside down. Some believe that Jesus was misleading the people. How disheartening and reflective of John 6, 60 to 71 last week. Remember? The majority, slowly, before the water, after the water, crowds follow, and they ends up with 11. To summarize, the Jewish leaders wanted to the Jesus dead. Now, when I say summarize, I don't mean I'm near the end. This is the summary of this point. So, to summarize, the Jewish leaders wanted Jesus dead. Some of the people thought he was a good, good man, and others thought he was deceiving or misleading. But I've intentionally left one group out, and that's his brothers. Most disturbing of all to me, and perhaps to you, that his very blood brothers did not even believe in him. 
Sproul adds to this. But even the time of the events recorded in John 7, which happened relatively late in Jesus' ministry, even though it appears like a third of the way through the gospel, his blood brothers had still not believed. They had grown up with him and followed his ministry, likely witnessing many of the miracles, but they had not come to faith in him at this point. Why the lack of belief? Why the desire to kill Jesus? At the heart of it lies a lack of understanding of the identity of Jesus Christ and a desire for self-exaltation. The people and the leaders wanted their needs met, their burdens lifted. The Jewish leaders wanted to be served and hold the place of honor. They were more interested in their own desires. They were more interested in the words of Moses, keeping their laws than the ones that they were pointing to. And here are his very blood brothers, encouraging him to go there for praise of man, crowd to follow. And Jesus has no part of this. So who is Jesus? Let's apply this. The remainder of this sermon is going to be hard-hitting for me and for you, I hope. So who is Jesus? The identity of Jesus. He is either divine or is a deceiver. If he is indeed divine, then he requires complete devotion. If not, then not. For it would be folly to be devoted to a deceiver, but it would be devastating not to follow the Son of God. The Bible is clear on the identity of Jesus. Let me rattle off some scriptures to you so you can, you can be supported by them. Jesus is, Jesus is the only one who can save us from the wrath of God and give us eternal life. John 1, 1 and verse 14. Because he is himself in flesh, the word was God and the word became flesh. He is the Messiah. John 4, 26. I, I who speak to you am he. And he is the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. So he is the only one who can die in the place of millions of sinners. I lay down my life for the sheep, John 10, 15, and rise from the dead because I lay my life for the sheep. I will take it up again, John 10, 17 and 18. God's word is really clear. There's no neutral ground. Either you are a slave to sin or slave to righteousness. The only way you transition from A to B is understanding the identity of the Savior. And they did not understand who was their brother, who was in front of them. And there's no neutral ground. Either you live for yourself or you live for God. Romans 6, 16. Do you not know that the one who presents yourself slave for obedience, you are the slaves of some of whom or one of you may either slave of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. What's the most precious resource you have? Time. Once spent can never be recovered. What you do with your time has eternal consequences. Friends, it's not about the length of time. It's about what you do with your time. There's no neutral ground. It is what we do with our time while we have breath of life given by God that matters. For who we live for is based on what we treasure above all else. Consider where our treasures lie. I'm using the term our, not sure. Is it indicative of my allocation of time? Do you know the average person will sleep 32.9% of their life? 
The average person will eat 5.8% of their life. The average person will spend 11.4% of their life watching TV. Do you know what the average time invested into religion last year was? 0.5%. That was a study that was conducted in America. Where our time and our treasures are aligned. So do we treasure God? I love this church already. I see so many of you investing your time in this body. Praise God. But my job isn't to pat you on the back. It's to encourage you to move forward. We can do better. We can do better. So much of our time is spent on things that will pass away, that have no meaning. The importance of stewarding our time for the glory of God is what it's all about. When we are enraptured with God, when we behold our God, when we overflow, will be an allocation of our time communing with him, reading his word, praying, spending time with other believers, sharing the good news to a lost and dying world. A subdivision is going in near here, close to here. Are we praying for that? Are we burdened for the lost around this church? How do we evidence that? With our time, not just our words. I've heard so many stories this week that have just been so overflowing my heart because I see people investing their time into not only you but to the lost and praise God for that. Keep up the good work. Do better. 0.5%, if that's the average, do your own time allocation. And I'm speaking to myself here. How much of our time are we investing into God? Years ago, probably over 500 years ago now, Luther, when he was talked about the importance of the day, he said, it's so important that I must spend time deeply with the Lord. I pray that's our heart's desire. Spurgeon adds, have you the right heart with Christ? If you will, and if you do, he will visit you often. And in so turn weekdays into Sundays, meals into sacraments, homes into temples, and earth into heaven. Mm. Daily spiritual disciplines matter. For what we consume, we will crave. A recommendation for you is to read faithful sermons of the past. Edwards, Spurgeon, Puritan preachers. I'm going to ask you to put up on the screen a sermon from 1764 from Jonathan Edwards. He preached a sermon from Ephesians 5 entitled Redeeming the Time from a series that he preached on the preciousness of time and the importance of redeeming it. Listen to Jonathan Edwards' words from why time is so precious. You have the summary there, but I'll read you the more detail. Time is precious, Edwards said. First, because a happy or miserable eternity depends on the good or ill improvement of it. Gold and silver are esteemed precious by men, but they are of no worth to any men, only as thereby he has an opportunity of avoiding or removing some evil or passing himself of some good. Second, time is short. 
which another thing that renders is very precious. The scarcity of any commodity occasions men to set a higher value upon it, especially if it is necessary, and they cannot do without it. Third, time ought to be esteemed by us because it's very precious, because we're uncertain of its continuance. Fourth, time is very precious because when it is past, it cannot be recovered. If we have lived 50, 60, or 70 years and have not improved our time, now it cannot be helped. It is eternally gone from us. And that we can do to improve that little that remains. Second screen. Jonathan Edwards concludes the same sermon with an exhortation to help improve our time. My words are not as good as Edwards'. So I'm going to read you from Jonathan Edwards. He says, first, that you're accountable to God for your time. Time is a talent given to us by God. He set us our day, and it's not for nothing. That's not me copying that down wrong. It's not for nothing. The only, our day was appointed for some work. Therefore, he will, at the end of of the day, call us to account. Matthew 12, 36. Second, consider time is something valued by those who come near to the end of it. That's true, isn't it? As you get near the end of your time, those that are young in this room, you think you have all the time in the world. I was at a funeral a few years ago for a man that was, or a young man that was about 20 years old. You don't know how much time you have. We can go around the room if we had time. And you can think of people that died young. Don't estimate your life to be actuarial tables, which means how long the average person lives. Use it while you have it before you lose it. Consider how time is valued by those coming near to the end of it. What a sense of preciousness have poor sinners sometimes when they are on their deathbeds. Such have cried out, oh, for a thousand words, for an inch of time. It is not because they are deceived that they think that the time be of such value, but that their eyes are opened. And it's because you are deceived and blind that you do not think as they do. Catch that. It's because you are deceived and blind that you do not think with the eyes of those that are dying. Wow. Consider, thirdly, how much time you have already lost. For you having lost so much, you have greater need of diligently improving what yet remains. You ought to mourn and lament over your lost time. Perhaps you may be thinking, if I was only there with Jesus, then I would believe. Do you catch my words, opening sermon last time? Belief is not sight, right? Belief is something that produces true sight and reorientation of one's life. Then I would believe in him. Consider this tragic reality that many were walked with Jesus, saw his miracles, heard his teaching, and did not believe. At this point in Jesus' life, his very blood brothers didn't even believe in him. These have been written, John 20, verse 31. All of the miracles, all of the book of John, what we have been working through this morning, so that you will believe. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. Paul wrote, we walk by faith and not by sight. 
2 Corinthians 5, 7. Jesus stated, blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. John 20, 29. For you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're like a vapor, appears for a little while, vanishes away. James 4, 14. If you're already a believer this morning, let me speak to you this briefly. Then shine as the lights you're intended to be. Matthew 5, 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do the people light a lamp and put it under the basket, put it under the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Your light must shine before people in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Use your time wisely. For those who are not part of the family of God, you might look like you got it all together, maybe even dress nicely, you come in, maybe even attend every week. I'm not assuming anything. This might be your last day. Use it wisely. Who are you living for? You may have limited time to hear and obey. Jonathan Edwards concludes a sermon referenced prior in speaking to those who have died and were not followers of God. Listen to Edwards' words. Finally, consider what a value we may conclude is set on this time by those who have passed the end of it. What thoughts do you think that they have of its preciousness? Who have lost all their opportunity for obtaining eternal life and are gone to hell. Though they may lavish, the very lavish of the time that they have lived, they've set no great value upon it. Yet, now, oh, how they've changed their judgments. How would they value the opportunity which you have this morning? If they might but have been granted to them, what would they not give for one of your days under the means of grace so that you will first and last be convinced? But if you are not convinced except in the manner in which they are, it will be too late. Wow. Spurgeon preached a sermon that was entitled, The Time is Short. And we're near the end. Time is rushing on, he says, and you'll see it on the screen. Swiftly, but silently, but while I speak, the minutes pass and the hour is soon gone. The day is almost spent. I charge you then by the ever-blessed Spirit. Listen now to the warning. Escape from sin. Get out of the broad road which leads to destruction. Believe in Jesus. Lay hold on eternal life. And may the Spirit of God arouse you. May these words be blessed to you. May they put you, that they should put more forcibly, if I knew how. With all the fervor of my soul, I entreat you, for I know your everlasting interests are imminently jeopardy. God, grant them that they may not linger longer, lest hope, happily or hopefully you linger too long and perish in your lingering. The time is short. Friends, you're not promised. Tomorrow, no am I. What you do with your time matters eternally. We receive salvation in Christ through repentance in faith. That means turning away from sinful ways, repenting for the wages of sin or death, Romans 6.23. And turning to God in faith, trusting in Christ, and the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 6.23, the end of it. John 11.25 affirms Jesus is the resurrection, Jesus is the life, and the one that believes in him will never die ever die eternally therefore 
Do not put off tomorrow what you feel the Lord is pressing on you today, for no one is promised tomorrow. Luke 12, 20. God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is demanded of you. And as for all that you prepared, who will own it now? To everyone listening, choose for yourself today whom you will serve. Yourself or the Lord? Our time is running out, not only this morning, but in our very lives. As we stand before the Lord, either we will be declared righteous through the covering blood of Jesus Christ or guilty, eternal union with God or eternal separation and damnation. Choose for yourself today whom you will serve. Joshua 24, 15. God or yourself, the creator of all things which are created. And we may be able to say with integrity, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose from yourself today whom you will serve. Make the most of your time because the days are evil. I implore you, redeem your time while there is still time. For Jesus, it was always about time. God's time. This is your time. This is mine. What will you do with the time that God gives you? Who will you live for, for the days that the Lord gives you? Friends, it's time. I pray that all of you in the room follow Christ, that you get it, that your life reorients it. This is not about tickling your ears. This is about imploring your hearts to follow Christ and understand who he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to spend time in your word. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for his willing obedience to follow you all the time. Follow your will. If anyone hearing my words this morning is being stirred in their hearts through the words of your Holy Spirit, may they not put off or look to the future, but may they make a decision this morning to follow you, to repent of their sins, to turn and to follow Christ, to reorient their lives. And your word promises that you will bless that. You will grant eternal life. May they turn from the self-consumed and turn to Christ. Precious Lord, your word teaches us to number our days, that we present you a heart of wisdom. Teach us to realize the brevity of our life so that we grow in wisdom. May we be able to say one day soon, Lord, that you have been our dwelling place to everlasting God. And our lives turn back to dust. And then we rejoice eternally at the throne of our Savior, God. Lord, come quickly. Thank you for the time that you've given us. Thank you for this week that you blessed us with as a family. And I pray that there are marching orders, just like Christ's, is to be on mission to do your will with the time that you give each and every one.